Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. But it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of Him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. We have a phrase that we use when we want to describe the way any given issue may have seemingly competing points. Uh, For example, we may talk about the nature of God, and on the one hand, we can talk about God's love. And on the other hand, we can talk about God's wrath. One subject, God, and yet two ideas about God that perhaps uh, seem like they may compete with one another. The phrase that we use to describe this kind of topic is that we say there are two sides to the coin. You've heard this term, maybe you've used the phrase in a different kind of way, but basically that's what we're saying. Just as a coin has heads and tails, in other words, two ends, so to speak, all right, a front and a back, uh, one side and another, so do issues often have one side and then a, I guess we could say, flip side. Another example of this would be the doctrine of man. On one side of the coin, we have the truth that we're made in the image of God. Yet on the other side, there is the reality that we're all born dead in our trespasses and sin. And so some may may try and figure out, how is it that we understand both sides of the coin? This morning, we turn our attention to the biggest issue with the biggest coin, and that is salvation. And that is on the one side of the coin being the doctrine of election. And yet on the other side of the coin being human responsibility. We've already addressed this. We've had some discussion of this already. It's it's come up in the book of Romans. It came up as we talked about uh, that in Romans 28 and 29 and 30. And we, we gave some amount of discussion and teaching to that that golden chain of redemption of God's work from foreknowledge to predestination to calling to justification to glorification. 
But, but now, as, as we get into Romans chapters 9 through 11, we, we jump into this issue headlong. I mean, we're not just wading ankle deep or knee deep into these waters. Quite frankly, these waters are going to require us to tread a little bit, all right? Is that these are not easy topics. It's not an easy issue. Nonetheless, it's in the text. And as I promise you, we're not going to skip over it because it's uncomfortable. We're not going to skip over it because maybe it's difficult. In fact, Paul saw fit, God by the Spirit saw fit to inspire Paul to include both sides of this coin. In fact, I would argue this. Romans chapter 9 stands as the lengthiest discussion of the doctrine of election in the Bible. And then I would say Romans chapter 10 stands as one of the greatest missionary texts in all of the Bible. On the one hand, we have a chapter that absolutely exalts God's work of election and choosing. And yet the very next chapter, it's not like Paul all of a sudden has a senior moment, right? And forgets what he wrote in chapter 9. That the very same section of Romans that says, God did this to exalt His own election... The very next chapter then says, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul definitely is going to hold these two ideas in tension. So are we. We're going to take our time and make sure that we understand exactly then what's going on in these texts. Now, we've already started in in this section of Romans. First eight chapters, Paul has proclaimed the gospel. I mean, a, a beautiful, detailed, profound description of what it means to be made right with God. Now in chapters 9 through 11, Paul clearly is responding to challenges that have been made to what he has said. In many ways, I think 9 through 11 are a defense then of this gospel. A defense of the gospel in particular in light of what may be the biggest threat to it. Paul has said, and, and, and not only all along the way, but especially at the end of chapter 8, that those who believe in the gospel, those who have been saved, that they are forever saved. God's love is unbreakable and unshakable. We can be certain that there is no one and nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which has led probably some smarty pants somewhere along the way in Paul's uh, interactions to say, oh yeah, what about the Jews? Didn't God make some pretty incredible promises to the Jews in the Old Testament? And yet, even in first century Rome, quite frankly, in 21st century world today, the vast majority of Jews are unbelievers, wholeheartedly rejecting the gospel, not for a lack of knowledge. I guess as most Jews around the world know the gospel. In fact, it is a blatant rebellion against it. So, if it is the case that God always keeps His promises, and yet in the Old Testament, God has said, these are my chosen people. They enjoy an everlasting covenant. I've set my love upon them. Why is it then that so many of them have rejected this life-saving gospel? If in fact this challenge is correct, well, then the gospel falls apart. In other words, if God then decided to 
forget some of the promises He made in the Old Testament and start over? What confidence do I have that the promises made in the New Testament are any better than the ones He couldn't get right in the Old? This is the challenge that's being posed to Paul. And so as we turned our attention to this, we we did so though with a particular eye. I think an eye that Paul would intend for us to take toward it. That is, not only is Paul defending the gospel, but he's doing so, I think, to undergird what would be a liberal declaration of the gospel. It's not very often that I'm going to encourage you to be liberal, all right? You can be liberal in your giving, all right? You should also be liberal in your going. You should be liberal in your proclamation of the gospel. You should should spread that message far and wide. And I think Paul's words help us then develop a, a, a clear confidence that though on the one side of the coin we have got, I think, an undeniable testimony to God's work of election, on the other side we have an undeniable testimony to what is going to be man's responsibility. So, th- this is our, our task. By the way, it looks like my microphone has gone out. Is that the case? All right. It's turned red. Well, it's good because I'm in front of this. All right, so this is going to be a bit like a caged lion, but I want everybody to hear, all right? You can't get out of this by saying, oh, I couldn't hear what the preacher said. All right, so we're, we're, going, we're going to go old school, and I'm going to hold on, right, to the pulpit, and we're going to let it fly. You all ready? No, you've never heard that about the doctrine of election, right? I mean, who has said that? Who says that about the doctrine uh, of election? So here's what we're doing this morning is, as we've already started to look at these verses, we looked at verses 1 through 5, where really what Paul does for us is he, he grounds all of this discussion in what is his profound compassion for lost people, in particular his own Jews, his own brothers and sisters, his own countrymen by the flesh. And, and I think, you know, we took some time, in fact, we took a bit of a sidestep, we took two weeks to consider then our own compassion for the lost. What does it look like for us to have compassion for the lost? How desperate is our need as believers in Christ to be so burdened, as Paul was burdened, to see the salvation of those around us? But, but as Paul continues this declaration, this defense of the gospel, uh, he moves away then from this first point of having compassion for the lost, and now he's going to make a second point. And, and again, keeping with what we've been talking about, you know, Paul is really going to give us confidence that we can defend and declare the gospel. And in order to do that effectively, first we need compassion for the lost, but then number two, and I think there'll be blanks to fill in in your notes, number two, we need to trust in God's election. To trust in God's election. Paul is going to give then the rest of his time in verses 6 through 29 to unpacking the doctrine of election. Again, we've, we've already addressed it to some degree, but we're, we're going to let now Paul flesh this out for us to an even greater degree, keeping in mind that Paul's not going to ignore human responsibility. We'll get to that in chapter 10. But before doing so, Paul makes sure that we understand the nature of election. Because for Paul, this is what answers the challenge. 
the challenge that's been made to him about the Jews, Paul's bottom line is going to be this. God's always chosen some and passed over others. This has always been the way God has been at work. He's he's never just wholesale accepted even those who have physical lineage to Abraham. Now, before he does this, note again in verse 6. Paul's really driven by the first part of here, verse 6. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. That comes directly from verses 3 through 5, where Paul had laid out all the privileges the Jews would have enjoyed. uh, all, All of the unique benefits they had because they were under the covenant. They they had the law, they had the temple, they had the sacrifices, they had their history, which involved God's unique manifest presence among them, and yet here they are largely living in unbelief. So Paul's making this assertion, but it's not that God's word has fallen away, died off. It's not as if somehow God's promise has failed to fulfill what God said. So, so why is that, that the case? So as we look at then Paul's encouragement in 6 through 29 to us to trust in then the electing work of God, we're, we're going to go one step down now in the outline, all right? So now there's going to be three more points coming your way. I'm just going to warn you, everything I'm going to do over the next few weeks, my preaching professor would say, never do it this way. But you all know what I think about that, right? He's not what? the boss of me. All right, that's right. So, but there's still this internal compulsion, all right, to, to see him in the back and he's holding up his cards and he's giving me C's on my sermons. All right, which he did. All right, n- nonetheless. Okay. I think Paul lays out for us three reasons why we should trust in God's electing work. Three reasons why we should trust in God's electing work. Number one, as sovereign, God has always elected some passed over others. God's always worked this way. And he goes all the way back to the Old Testament. He goes all the way back to Abraham himself and the very foundation of the nation of Israel in order to make this argument. Notice how he says this beginning in verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. I mean, already he's giving us a bit of an answer to the challenge. So what do we do with all these Old Testament promises? What do we do with the fact that the Jews, though they had all these privileges, do not believe in the gospel? And Paul comes back and says, well, the first thing you need to know is just because they are quote-unquote Israel doesn't mean they're actually Israel. may sound like an odd way to say it, but he's using a play on words. Just being physical descendants does not mean that they are children of the promise. In other words, God did not make this wholesale blanket promise to every single Jew just because they had Abraham's blood running through their veins. In fact, the Old Testament is full of teaching about the remnant. That not everybody was not everybody in the Old Testament was saved, even if they were physical descendants, even if they were of Israel, ethnically speaking. There was no guarantee of anything. So they're not all Israel who are of, of Israel. He goes on to explain it this way in verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. 
So Paul's now going to begin to flesh this out. How God has always worked in a way that's consistent with election, with choosing. In fact, just take the example of Abraham himself. Why did God select Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans? He just did. He just did. You may say, no, no, pastor, it was, it was faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited him to righteousness. You need to read the text again. That didn't happen until after God chose him. That didn't happen until Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 12 is when God calls to Abram and says, I want you to leave this land and I'm going to take you to a land that I'll show you when you get there and I'm going to make you the father of a mighty nation. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God, out of all the Chaldeans, all of them were pagans, all of them were living in rebellion to God, why did God choose Abraham? Because he did. It's a terrible answer, isn't it? How frustrating is that, right? Why why did God choose him? Because God, in and of himself, made a sovereign choice. There's no other reason, by the way, given in Scripture. There's no other reason. There's no text that ever says... God looked down the tunnel of human history and he saw that Abraham would believe. Because you look down the tunnel of Abraham's history and what do you find? A lot of sin and unbelief. Read Genesis. He does a lot of very silly things. Was was God looking down? No, God simply chose. Faith for Abram came after God's choice. So right from the beginning, we already have a nod to this electing work of God. But now he's going to get more specific. So just because you are of the seed of Abraham doesn't mean you're a child of God. Why not? Verse 7, in Isaac your seed shall be called. So what's he getting at here? Well, he doesn't mention Ishmael, but that's who he's talking about, right? You remember the story, the backdrop here? Abram gets this amazing promise from God. We can reasonably assume Abram and Sarah, Sarai, we'll go ahead and call them Abraham and Sarah for the sake of convenience. Abraham and Sarah, they're young folks at this point. When God first calls them out of Ur. And God makes this promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a mighty nation. In fact, on more than one occasion, he brings him out and he, and he shows him. He says, look at the grains of sand. You're going to have more kids than that. And he points up into the sky and he says, if you could count all of the stars, you'd be able to count all of your descendants. What an exciting promise, right? Your tribe is going to be a massive tribe. Sure, Sarah and Abraham spent nights thinking about this work God was going to do in them and through them. And the nights turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years, and Abraham and Sarah are old people. A hundred and ninety 100 years old for Abraham, 90 years old for Sarah, respectively, all right? So now, now it has been years and years, and there was still 
No child. At least not from Sarah. See, several years back, Abraham and Sarah got it in their minds. Well, we're getting up in years. Clearly, Sarah was barren. She could not conceive. So what did they do? They come up with their own plan. I know some of the kids have left, but we won't get into all of that. All right? Okay? If you want to read Genesis and explain it all, you can do that, okay? Just telling you, they came up with a different plan using a servant named Hagar. The result was Ishmael. Paul's making it clear here. God made a choice. Ishmael was not the son of promise. Being a descendant of Abraham is not a guarantee. Your heritage is no guarantee that you've got a good relationship with God. By the way, let's step out of the whole Israel stuff for just a moment. Church, we would do well to remember that. We would do well to remember that in terms of our evangelism. We would do well to remember that in terms of a church. Your heritage has no benefit to you being right with God or not. Your heritage does not give you a good relationship with God. I'm not saying born into a Christian family doesn't help, but I will tell you right now, being born into a Christian home, being born in America, being in church nine months before you were born, that was me, by the way, but none of that. I was, I was all three of those. Born in America, good Christian home, in church nine months before I was born, but there still had to come a time where I, by faith, trusted in Christ as Savior. None of those things saved me. Only Jesus did. Understand, if you're here today and you think your heritage is what earns you right fellowship with God, you are seriously mistaken. If anybody could be made right with God because of their heritage, it would be sons and daughters of Abraham, right? In fact, people in Jesus' day thought that. And they fussed with Jesus when he suggested otherwise. They even cried out to him in John chapter 8, but we're sons of Abraham. Jesus, in essence, says, doesn't matter. Paul even says it in chapter 2. You are, those who are of the flesh of Abraham are not of Abraham, are not really truly Israel. You have to have a circumcision of the heart. There needs to be a work of the gospel. You know what Romans teaches? This, can, this may, in fact, be as controversial as the doctrine of election itself. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are more a child of Israel than those who are ethnic Jews who don't believe the gospel. It's what Romans says. It's what Paul's getting at. In Isaac, the promise is going to come. It's going to come in Isaac. And so, when Abraham's 90, 100, and Sarah's 90, they receive a visit from three angels. One of those angels tells Abraham, this time next year I'm going to come back. In fact, it even says it there in verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time, I'll come and Sarah shall have a son. A year from now, I'm going to come back. You're going to have a bouncing baby boy. Sarah overhears this, and what does she do? She laughs. So what do they name Isaac? They name him Laughter. They name him Laughter. Because Sarah didn't believe. Again, we're going to be delicate here. There's only one miraculous Holy Spirit conception. That was Mary. Every other kind happened the natural way, okay? That means for Abraham and Sarah, beyond years. That's what they said. We're beyond our years, but something happened, and God in His infinite grace and mercy 
ensured that his promise would continue, not through Ishmael. That was not his choice. Isaac was his choice. And it was a miraculous birth. There's no other way to explain it. At 190, 100 years old, 90 years old, how else do you explain it? That's what he's getting at. That's why he says then in verse 8, that is, those who are the children of flesh, these are not the children of God. The children of the promise are counted as the seed. In other words, those who come as children of the promised one are those who are those who have access then to the promise. By the way, I think verse 8 is a verse that also applies to us. We are children of the promise. Our heritage is not what distinguishes us. It is, in fact, our relationship to God in Christ Jesus. So, again, Paul, Paul is describing here then this, this electing work of God. And he uses Abraham and Isaac as an example. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Now, you may say, oh, but pastor, we know the whole deal there with Ishmael, all right? I mean, that's a whole soap opera mess. Of course Ishmael wasn't the chosen one. I mean, they took matters in their own hands, right? So Ishmael and Isaac do not have the same mother. So obviously Isaac would be chosen over Ishmael. That's not a good argument. So notice what Paul says in verse 10. And not only this, it's a great transition, but wait, there's more. Act now and we'll send two free ones too. All right, okay, so wait. It gets better. I have a better argument than the one I just made. I was just buttering y'all up for a minute. <laughs> I've got something that's more compelling. Not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. Skip down to verse 12 for just a minute. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. In other words, we have... We have another example of election. Okay, if you're not compelled by Isaac, Ishmael, what about Jacob and Esau? They both have the same mother. They both have the same father. In fact, they're twins. They're twins. And you may recall a similar kind of situation that Abraham and Sarah had. Isaac and Rebekah could not conceive. Isaac prayed to God for a child. And what does God do? He gives them two. He gives them two. And what does God decide here? God decides on no other basis but His own sovereign design. The older will serve the younger. Now, you may say, well, Pastor, that, I mean Esau. We all know <laughs> Esau, right? That dude had all kinds of issues. And we know that Esau goes on to be the father of the nation that's known as the Edomites, longtime rivals to Israel, thorns in their flesh, so to speak, known for their sin and rebellion. But notice what, what is said there in this parenthetical statement, verse 11. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, 
That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. Now, stick with me here for just, just, a, just a couple more minutes, all right? Because this is a profound, in my estimation, a profound argument for this doctrine. Jacob and Esau had no history yet. In other words, God made this decision. This, is, this comes straight out of the Genesis account. So you can go back and read the larger context. Paul is remarkably accurate here about what's going on. The promise is made. The statement is made that the older will serve the younger. This is said to Sarah and, and I mean, this is said to Rebecca and Isaac before these kids are even born. Before they're even born. The purpose of this is what? Not... It, it, They've not done anything right or wrong. They've not done anything good or evil. In other words, there's no work out there. there there's nothing that, that prompted God's choice at this point. Notice what Paul says. The reason why God chose Jacob over Esau was to, to show that his election might stand. To show that salvation is generated by God's own sovereignty. He makes the decision in and of himself based on nothing else. And so let me, let me hit this issue again. I don't think for a minute that the argument stands. Well, God saw down the tunnel of human history, and he saw that Jacob would believe and Esau would not. I'd go back and read those stories again. Does Jacob stand as a premier example of faith and obedience? Jacob was a deceitful, swindling liar. Jacob hardly stands as this profound example of obedience and love for God. Neither did Isaac, by the way, and neither did Abraham. You read Genesis, you found these guys are regularly doing things that come up against what God would expect from them. Lying about whether or not their wife was actually their sister, right? So much so that some really bad things could have happened when they were in Egypt. Let's let's then track that. What about the sons of Jacob? Have you read the rest of Genesis? Many of the sons of Jacob are horrible. Have you read the rest of the history of Israel? Have you read the book of Judges? You're going to need to shower when you're done. It's awful. It's awful the stuff these people do. In other words, to say God looked down the tunnel of human history and he saw what they would do, that, if in fact that is correct, that only strengthens the argument for election. Because when God looked down that tunnel of human history, what did he see but sin and rebellion? And what did God decide to do? To choose. What was the basis of that choice? Himself. Himself. And so think about this. And this is the question I had when, I, when I've been reading through this. And I can't tell you how many times I've read through chapters 9 through 11, how much I've read, how much I've listened to. Why twins? Why did God do that? Again, go back and read the account again for yourself. This is another miraculous birth. 
God intervenes in a woman who is barren to ensure children. Isaac was, uh, was just one son, right? So Abraham, Sarah had Isaac. Why, why wouldn't then Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob? Why does God, through a miraculous work, create twins? To me, that, that is the question. That is the question. Why would God do this? And again, I think, I think verse 11 is what, is what then establishes the answer. Why twins? God could have just done Jacob, but he didn't. He did Jacob and Esau because God decided this would be a means not only of demonstrating his great glory and grace in saving some, but also it would be a means of demonstrating his wrath and his justice against sin. In fact, I'm going to do something awful. You ready for this? Because this is then what he says about it in summation. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now you've already gotten a glimpse of this. A few weeks ago, John Strickland preached the text that is drawn from, Malachi chapter 1. And next week I'll explain it. All right? Okay? Next Sunday we will then jump in to those words. Because, again, what I want you then to wrestle with this week is that question, why twins? Why would he do that? Why would God even do that in the first place? It was unnecessary, right? I mean, from our perspective, it is unnecessary. Why twins? Well, because I think, again, I think verse 11 is going to illustrate this is all to show off God's purposes of election. God has always elected some and passed over others. Now, I know what you're going to be thinking here. You're going to be thinking, well, this seems unjust and unfair. I'm glad you asked that question because verses 14 through 29 are going to answer it for us. So that's good news. Paul's going to answer this. It's not like we're thinking of questions he's never thought of, all right? Is this unfair? Is this unjust? Is it unjust for God to have created Esau knowing that Esau was going to be the object of his wrath? Was that unfair or unjust? So this is where, again, we're going to get into both sides of this coin. For now, though, notice what coin, what side of the coin we're on. We're on the head side, all right? Because it's only fair to put humans on the tail side. All right, so we're on the, God's on the head side. And we've got to make sure we keep that perspective when we think then about what God is doing in this work of election. Let me also then just make a comment as, as we bring then this time, this, this particular moment to a close. Okay, we, so we cut off the link of sausage here, tie that off, okay? We'll fry up some more next Sunday. Some may hear this, and, and, and you may have a lingering then concern well, Pastor, if what you're saying is true, in other words, if this doctrine of election thing is a real thing and, and you're going to get into it next week and, and th- this is what's going on, God chooses some and passes over others, then what do we make of evangelism? What a great question. First of all, obviously this doctrine does nothing to my sense of evangelism because tonight I'm going to keep teaching a method on how you can more effectively share your faith. 
I absolutely believe in evangelism, in in scattering the Word of God broadly, in going to the nations. I absolutely believe in this. So does Paul. As, As I said, the very verse, whoever believes on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's in Romans chapter 10. That's the chapter following the chapter on election. The greatest missionary text in the Bible, I think, is Romans chapter 10. This is, this is not coincidence. This is not just good fortune on Paul's writing part. I mean, this is, this is God by His Spirit ensuring that we understand this is the bigger work that God is doing, eternally speaking, with the doctrine of election. Yet at the same time, do I have any idea what's going on in that sphere? No. No, I don't. And just to strengthen this point, by the way, I would just remind us some of the greatest missionaries of the modern world believed in this doctrine of election. William Carey is the father of modern missions, believed in this doctrine of election. David Livingston believed in this. You probably heard that name. Adniram Judson, maybe, maybe not, first Baptist missionary, Southern Baptist missionary to India. And all right, Southern Baptist, I got two other names I'm going to throw at you. How about Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong? Do you know they both believed in the doctrine of election? That doesn't get promoted as much, all right? But that is absolutely true. Two women with some of the greatest missionary zeal in all of Southern Baptist history would be sitting on the front row amening Paul's words in Romans chapter 9. So these words don't hinder evangelism. And these words don't change anything about our mandate. But here's what they should do. One that should drive us to our knees in humility. And it should drive us to our knees in awe of how God, in such profound mystery, has intervened in our lives to ensure our salvation. Again, I I promise you that next week we're going to get to... Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, because we get all wrapped up in the phrase Esau I hated. Quite frankly, you know what the more controversial part of that is? Jacob I loved. That's far more controversial. What have we done to engender God's love? Why has God loved us so much? He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I know some of you are thinking, I don't know John 3.16, but I do. I do. And it does nothing to this doctrine that I've taught. I'll share that next week, by the way. This is by far the more controversial concept. That God loved Jacob. Go back and read about Jacob. He's wildly unlovable. (laughs) Wildly unlovable. And quite frankly, when we read about him, we might be looking a bit into a mirror and seeing ourselves. And maybe, in fact, that's what this should do. Is he can drive us to our knees in gratitude to God's saving mercy. So as we have a time of invitation this morning, I I would then make make a challenge first. Anybody here who may not know Christ, uh, understand salvation comes in Christ and Christ alone. Placing your faith in him, believing Jesus died and rose from the dead. That is the only means of being made right with God. Heritage doesn't count. Proximity to church doesn't count. Relationships with Christian parents, that doesn't count. It's not what does this. 
surrendering to the gospel. And I'll be down front if you want to know more about that. I'll, I'll be there to, to meet you, pray with you, talk with you about that. To brothers and sisters in Christ, I would encourage you, one, to struggle with this doctrine. I understand there's wrestling here. I understand some of you are fine with it. I understand for others this is disturbing. Others may just simply think I'm wrong, and I'm good with that. I'm okay, by the way, with that, all right? I'm okay with that. Just know that your wrestle is not with me, it's with the Word. And if you're doing that, great. Wrestle with the Word. Don't let go till it yields its blessing. But I warn you, it may leave its mark on you, all right? It may, it may leave its mark. And perhaps this is something that does drive you to your knees. Uh, allow this to, to be used by God to, to, again, express gratitude to Him for His goodness and His grace toward us. Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, this time will be open to you. Father God, we thank You for gathering us. We thank You for Your Word. We confess our limitations. But we also confess our confidence in Your Word, in Your promises to us in the Gospel. And we pray, God, that You would continue by Your Spirit to instruct us, to bring Your Word, to bear in our lives that we might be faithful to what You have commanded of us. So have Your way and be glorified in what is done in Your people this morning. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.